Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. You need a show called Fresh Off the Boat and Blackish to get a show called Atlanta. It's just steps. And I think we're headed there, and I think people are mindful of that, of getting there now. Even people in positions of power, they're realizing the, 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 um, the good business sense in going that direction. And I don't think that was ever the case throughout like my earlier career, or definitely when I was growing up. That was Randall Park. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Today on the podcast is Randall Park. Um, what a good name, Randall Park. I wish I had a name like Randall Park. Um, I also wish I was half as funny as uh, Randall. Uh, if you have not seen him on Fresh Off the Boat, um, you should correct that. But but also, perhaps more importantly, he has a movie that came out this year. Um, it's called Always Be My Maybe. He co-wrote it with Ali Wong. Um it's a very, very uh, lighthearted, uh, good-natured, um, kind of old-school rom-com, except for the fact that it doesn't have uh, a bunch of white people. Um, and in that way, um, it became this kind of sensation online and with people you know, on Netflix watching and streaming. And I, and I think to date, um, it is one of the most popular films uh, of the year. Um, it seems to have broken out. And in many ways, uh, uh, as has Randall, you know, I, I do 
a fair bit of preparation for these podcasts. Um, I've mentioned that uh, both in these intros and uh, on episode 150, where my friend Harrison uh, interviewed me. And something I found uh, in preparation for this episode is that Randall Park, um, like many uh, men and women of color, uh, is unfortunately tasked with answering the same questions over and over and over again. And, you know, these are questions of diversity and and, uh, racial stereotypes in Hollywood uh, of the Asian community. They're just questions about the Asian community in which we ask someone to represent an entire group. And that's not to say I'm I'm not guilty of of charting some of that territory, but uh, for the next hour, um, I certainly did my best to better capture uh, who Randall was growing up, uh, you know, in, in Culver City, and then what he was like when he went to UCLA for college, and and the years after that where he was finding his footing as an actor, and a writer and a director. And then now, where uh, things have, have really worked out for him, he has a bunch of shows and movies happening and, and has made a name for himself in this industry. Uh, I think, um, unlike many of the interviews he's done, we get to places that um, he doesn't normally get to go. And, and that is, you know, the general goal of the show. And so uh, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Randall Park. Um, if you'd like to check out some of the things uh, that we refer to in this episode, uh, I urge you to seek out his personal website. It's called RandallParkPlace.com. And uh, in prep, I went to this site, I watched a bunch of his short films, and uh, it is such a joy to watch uh, the early work of people you admire, because you, you get little tidbits about who they were at that time and how they came to be the person they are now. And, and so uh, RandallParkPlace.com. I hope he's not upset that I'm putting that website out there. Um, <laughs> there's some really fun short films, though. Uh, Workout Tape, The Food, um, Baby Mentalist. Uh, there's there's so many fun ones. So anyway, um, much love to Randall Park for coming on the show. And uh, much love to you for listening on this Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, or whenever the hell you're listening to it. Um, I appreciate you being here. So, without further ado, here is the one and only Randall Park. Randall Park, how are we doing? Good. Thank you for coming out to Highland Park. It's great to be here. It's a joy to have you. Um, there are plenty of things I want to talk about. You grow up in Culver City, right? Uh, well, West L.A., like yeah. near Culver City, yeah. And you've described your time uh, as a kid as having a diverse group of friends. Super diverse. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and Like I, perfectly diverse. Yeah, like it was casted by NBC. In an absurd NBC. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In yeah. 2019 casting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't mean like it was the rest the good of place. Yeah, yeah, it's a good place. Yeah. What fascinates me is is you have this friend group that's diverse growing up, and then you go to college uh, at, at UCLA, 
and one of your big reservations about going to college, and if I get any of this wrong, please correct me, mm-hmm. trying to not generate fake news here, um, is that there were going to be more Asians than you've ever experienced in your life. Mm-hmm. And then you go reluctantly and end up having a a good time. But there's a quote that I like that I wrote down, if you don't mind. You said, uh, when you went to college, it opened my eyes to a lot of things that I didn't realize was a problem. But it was a problem. What was the problem? Well, uh, you know, I hadn't been very uh, conscious in terms of myself as an Asian American or Korean American person, you know, I just kind of had my set of friends. We all watched the same things, listened to the same music. And, uh, uh, I never felt like there was a problem. It was just, this is just a regular American upbringing in a big city. Mm. And, uh, and it was. And when I got to college, became immersed in amongst Asian Americans and became kind of a a part of it, I, you know, started realizing, oh, that, yeah, that was kind of a regular upbringing, but it wasn't very good for me, you know, in terms of not seeing anybody kind of like me growing up Mm -hmm. reflected, like, in TV, movies, music, anything, and being completely okay with that, (laughs) you know. Because you didn't know any other. I didn't know anything else, yeah. And it was kind of, it, it was just normal. It was normal for all of us. You watch Indiana Jones and you see Short Round and you laugh because Short Round's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And the whole time you're thinking, I'm Indiana Jones, you know. And then you step out in the real world and everyone sees you as Short Round. Yeah. I never thought I was Indiana Jones. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> While you're sitting there for those couple hours that you're in his boots. You hope. Yeah. It's yeah. a dream. <laughs> it's not gonna yeah, happen. you hope. You inspire you're inspired <laughs> and you're you know. And yeah. It seemed like there was just true uh genuine disconnect that you were having at nineteen and twenty between the life you led and um the life you seemed like you were about to lead yeah yeah and you know i had a i I had a group of i had a great group of friends growing up i was a part of a lot of groups you know growing up Mm -hmm. and um i remember distinctly remember having a group of friends one of the groups was predominantly white subgroup of friends that i hung out with and i remember one of them was uh having a it was like a holiday like kind of get together with all the friends and they invited me and it turned out to be like a gift exchange thing but i didn't know about the gift exchange thing i hate those yeah but they were all they had all planned out this gift exchange thing and i was always kind of the clown of that group you know and i remember showing up and uh they're like oh it's gift exchange time and i was like oh nobody told me it was gift exchange time and i and they were all like giving gifts to each other mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, why did they invite me, you know? (laughs) And I think it was because I was, like, kind of the entertainment of the group, Mm. you know? And I felt like that was one of the early kind of instances where I felt like, oh, I'm I'm not, like, really a part of this group. And I didn't think of it in terms of a racial thing at the time. I just thought, oh, I guess I'm just, like, kind of 
of entertainment. You, you, were, serv- you were serving a role. Yeah. And then when I look back on it, I was like, oh, there, there had to have been some, you know, some kind of racial element there, or maybe not. I don't know, but uh, I certainly wasn't like really a part of that group. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for them it was probably, because this is their teenage years. Yeah. I imagine a lot of it was subconscious. Completely. Completely. And, and not all the way malicious. No, not at all. Not at all. I think it was, uh, they had probably all planned it out, invited everybody, and then as a you know second thought, oh, well, we got we to gotta get Randall. Right. He provides this thing. Yeah, it'll be so fun, and no one really thought of, like, that. Mm. Yeah. What did your parents think about you being in these groups and then going to college? Because they, they come here, uh, your dad comes here in the 70s with your mother because he's looking for a wife. He goes back to his hometown. He finds her. They come back to L.A. in the 70s. So they have their own peculiar outlook on America and themselves and their own identity. What did they make of you? I mean, they were very invested in being American, you know. They wanted that. Yeah, they wanted that. And they loved that I have had all these friends of different backgrounds and you know, a lot of Korean parents are very into kind of keeping the culture and maintaining the language and um, going to Korean school every weekend and church every Sunday, Korean church. And my parents weren't so big on that. They were really into me being one with the people around me and really kind of push that. Why do you think they wanted that? You know, I talked to my mom about it, and she told me when she first got here, my dad was working a full-time job. My mom uh, just had two kids living in an apartment right near my high school, this apartment that we all grew up in, and she barely spoke English, Mm. and she was super depressed and had a really hard time getting to know people while raising these two kids and really felt like she wanted us to not experience anything like that she wanted us to be one with the community that we were in you Mm. know whereas she felt like completely isolated and um yeah for her it was really important that we don't feel those feelings did you sense that she was depressed as a kid Mm, yeah here and there yeah for sure because i i found i I realized i was driving here i was like god i'm wearing this mexico shirt and and i look so white but I have this experience with my dad's side, you know, all from, from Mexico City. And, and in being a kid around them, I noticed that my white side of the family was much more interested in expressing feelings than my Mexican side. Not that they held everything in. They actually were occasionally emotional, but that the white side was so much more volatile and so much more transparent about things. I wondered what your experience was with that. Uh, my dad was very, kept things in. And he was busy because he was importing, exporting, and then working at a toy factory. Yeah, working at a, yeah, working for a toy company, working for, uh, having his own one-hour photo business. He was always, like, into something, mm-hmm. you know. Something new. Something new. And, um, just a hard worker. Still working to this day, even though he's, like, technically retired. Yeah. Um, but he just has to keep working. And my mom, uh... Yeah, she she spent a good part of our early childhood just raising us and then working at UCLA. And she got a job at UCLA as a, working for the uh, the student store as an accountant and just worked there for the next 30 years. And she also paints. She paints, yeah. She's a painter and, and uh, 
we grew up with canvases like lining the walls of our our home and, mm. and uh, um yeah but she was more emotionally expressive certainly more than my dad and um and we saw it you know we saw when she was depressed we could feel when she was uh we knew when she was angry we knew, we knew she, when she was happy mm. yeah has that changed over the years as as you you know left college and became an adult did your relationships with them change in terms of what they were willing to share with you yeah they're more open even my dad is a little more open now you know my dad says i love you you know which is not <laughs> something we ever heard growing up you know it's so it's weird to hear it actually uh from him it's more weird to hear it than to just not hear it <laughs> yeah yeah that's the state of things. Uh, yeah, yeah, I like it, but uh, but it's it is it is weird to hear out of his mouth. Mm. Did you sense that he didn't love you as a kid, or that he just no, he no, was busy? He was, he was busy. He was busy, uh, but he he was crazy about us. Right. I could tell growing up, but I could really tell now just how crazy he is about his kids, and mm. I feel the same way about my daughter. It's just like that. We're I'm just so crazy about her. Right. And it's this. I'm sure the same feeling my dad had for us, even though he didn't express it in a big way. Mm. Um, in retrospect, uh, yeah, it was there. You know, when you go to UCLA, there are a whole host of things that you think you want to do. I know there's some graphic design stuff you were you, yeah. you did later on, and yeah. your parents wanted you to be a lawyer or a doctor. Yeah. But when you go to UCLA, you do start this uh, this comedy theater company here. Looking back on it now, did you think at the time that this was going to be your gateway into something different, into a different kind of life? In the moment, uh, no. In the moment, it was something that it was really for fun and trying to, you know, you're in college, you try to do different things, try to find, figure out who you are. And literally an English teacher told me that I should think about majoring in, in English and, and trying writing because she thought my writing was good and funny. And uh, so I was like, oh, I'll try writing. And then, and then doing the creative writing specialization there at UCLA. And then from that, like, oh, I'm going to write a play, you know. And then from writing the play, forming this theater company and just kind of going with it because it was all fun. Mm. Yeah. Did you find that you were becoming a different version of yourself in college? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I was not a, I'm still not like a performative person, you know? <laughs> I'm not like a, an extrovert by any means. And, and um, I, I, I definitely wasn't growing up. And, uh, but I did, like amongst my friends, I was always an entertainer of sorts, mm. I guess. What does that mean to not be performative for you? I mean, I was I was an introvert, you know. I was not seeking a spotlight at all, you mm. know. But again, amongst like the people who I felt comfortable around, I felt like very free to be, you know. Right. But yeah, at that theater company in college is when like I don't know. I we you know I I wrote this play and we held auditions and there was a part of a narrator and you know, we ran out of actors. So I was like, oh, I'll do the narrator. Mm. And, and the narrator was kind of interwoven into the play. And, and I, so I got to be on stage and, and uh, uh, I was like, oh, wow, this is so fun. So, so fun. It's, it's fascinating to see uh, or hear about someone who's an introvert 
find so much joy doing a thing that requires everyone staring at you. Yeah, yeah. I wonder w- what to make of that. Yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think, you know, like, I think the writing had something to do with it. The fact that I had written stuff and in real time was feeling the reaction of an audience to these words that I had written. Mm. And, uh, and then also kind of saying the words. I don't know. It just felt so fun. Right. Really. Yeah. What happens uh, after college? Because you, you get a, a master's also. Yeah, in Asian American studies at UCLA. And I was thinking, oh, you know, I was going to become a professor or something yeah. and teach Asian American studies. I heard, I heard about this. Yeah. <laughs> and then... It uh, seemed short-lived. Yeah, I'd say midway through my, my master's program, I was like, I don't want to be in this world, you know. Right. And at that time, I'd been doing the theater company for a while. And I was like, man, that's what I really want to do. But I can't do it. I can't do it. It's going to be too hard. And my folks... They didn't want be, it. They didn't want it. Yeah. They didn't want it. So um, It's fascinating because in an interview you did last year, um, you go back home to your house and your mother is there and you describe like the sort of back and forth and the, the dynamic you, you two had in this period of your life where you're transitioning and trying to figure out what the career path is and then you do decide you want to act and write and, and, and make make something of yourself in show business. And she says... I didn't fight him much. I supported him along the way. <laughs> and this is just last year she was saying this. And immediately you go in and you say, that's really not true. <laughs> There's a lot of back and forth about what the true narrative is. So what what was it back then for you? It was initially, I had brought it up to her a few times, even when I was in college and in that theater group. And I was like, brought it up to her. Hey, this might be something that I I, I want to do. And and immediately she chewed it down yeah. like no no way and then years later you know I'd graduate and think about it, bring it up to her again she'd be like didn't realize how hard it would because she worked at UCLA mm-hmm. and she worked with students because she worked for the student store as an accountant and she worked with students in the theater program who some of them had graduated and they were kind of acting on the side and I remember her showing me like one of her coworkers acting reels, you know, and her saying like, this guy's amazing, uh-huh. but he's not going to make it, you know, and uh, that's was, how hard it is. Was she smiling just like that? <laughs> probably. <laughs> she probably got a little bit of a kick out of, you know, because he didn't make it. <laughs> I mean, she was right. It is so hard. Was it Shane Gillis? <laughs> yeah, it was just a VHS tape of just bullying racism. Mm. Uh, <laughs> He's more of a mad TV guy. So. <laughs> right, that's right. Um, what a fucking asshole. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is interesting because it seems she wasn't joyful about no. declining, but that she was skeptical. She was being... In retrospect, being a good mom. Mm-hmm. In the moment, didn't feel like it. <laughs> no. No, because I had all my other friends who wanted to pursue their dreams. Their parents were, like, all in. and But my mom was, you know, she... I think it's part of that immigrant thing. You know, you don't come to this country for your, your kids to become actors or right. to try to be actors. And, you know, she wanted us to be... Uh, take a safer route. Yeah. Yeah, and it just, over time... It got to the point where when I knew I wanted to actually, like, try and pursue it, 
I knew I couldn't tell her. I mm -hmm. just had to do it on my own. So I went out chasing after it initially without telling her, without right. telling anybody, really, like in my family. So that's in 2002, 2003. You really start going for it. You work at a Starbucks for a little bit, right? I did, yeah. And in that time, you say that you're willing to live that kind of hustle lifestyle for as long as it was going to take, that you were committed to that. Where do you think that commitment at that age, before you even know if you're good at it or, or that it could work out, where do you think that comes from? Well, you know, I think I, not that I knew I was good at it, but I had got, well, I had gotten enough validation from the theater group in college and after college, we, we, a bunch of us who graduated formed another theater group and we were kind of doing it for fun, you know, as we worked our regular day jobs and, and, uh, and I had gotten enough kind of validation from those, that community to kind of feel like, oh, I think I can do it. You know, I think I can. And um, the thought of working at Starbucks, I, I love that job. I actually had so much fun at that job. And, and the thought of like working there while doing it on the side, booking an occasional commercial, maybe a co-star, you know, once every two years, that felt like fun. Right. You know, that felt like, okay, this could be a fun life. Now, did you really pursuing acting come on the heels of, of a breakup also? Is that what happened? Yeah. I, yeah. I wonder how those two inform one another because I, I found that when something like that happens in your personal life, it's like, well, I got to do something else. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I mean, I had always only been in long-term relationships. Right. And uh, I was in a relationship that was, it was like a six-year relationship. and That um, is a long time. Yeah. That's like the average for me before I got married. Did you feel like you wanted to have the kind of long-term monogamous relationships that your parents had? I don't think my parents were the best model for, you know, I don't think I was, like, trying to have what my parents had. I mean... What does that mean? I mean, they, you know, it, I grew up with my parents fighting a lot. I remember it is a very, very uh, clear memory of laying in my bed and down the hall was their room and just hearing yelling, you know. I remember that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I got older that that stopped. But it stopped, and they're great now. But um, they, they went through a lot. Mm. What were the arguments about? I don't know, because it was in Korean, and my Korean was really bad. <laughs> but, I, I mean, usually, you know, money stuff. Yeah, just probably mostly money stuff. Mm. So this breakup happens. That's pretty, I mean, six years is a significant amount of time. Did you feel heartbroken after that? Of course, every time. Yeah, it was one of those things where I felt like I had all is lost and the only thing I could do is kind of do something really different. Mm. Is that how you've worked through breakups? Yeah, usually. You have a very early uh, traumatic moment uh, acting. I'm sure you had many, but there's yeah. one that I know about. Uh, you go to a uh, intensive workshop run by a woman named Leslie Kahn. <laughs> yeah. Walk us through what happens here. So the, her class was, was still is uh, one of the kind of ones that all the actors say, you, you got to take this class, you know. 
and you look at all the people who've graduated from that program and a lot of them have gone on to do great things and I was like oh, okay I got to take this class but in order to take the class you have to take this weekend intensive and the weekend intensive is this basic kind of script analysis comedy analysis auditioning and whatnot also kind of business stuff knowing kind of you know who you are in this business what you're selling mm -hmm. who you're selling to uh, where you how you fit into this business and one of the the last exercises was you go up in front of the class in a swivel chair with your back turned to the class and then you spin around and then everyone says the first thing that comes to mind without you saying anything all you have to do is spin around and face the class and those things that they say are probably how this industry is going to perceive you mm. which makes sense right and uh, yeah i remember this tall good looking Brad Pitt dude turning around and, you know, it's all those heroic characters and... Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, yeah. And I, I go up and, and turn around and uh, short round, you know, or variations of, and way worse, too. I mean, because the whole thing was do not censor yourself. Just mm -hmm. say the first thing that comes to mind. And I just remember being, like, hit with barrage of just stereotype upon stereotype. The three I have here are nerd tech guy and child molester. Yeah, yeah, and then one person said child molester, which wasn't, as far as I know, a stereotype, but uh, just this person's creative. Oh, you don't know about that stereotype? <laughs> I did not know about that stereotype. Yeah, Shane Gillis created it. <laughs> that Shane Gillis, man. Uh, it, was uh, just, it was right there for me. Yeah, yeah, it was. I didn't want to. <laughs> I don't feel good about it. <laughs> yeah, you should feel good about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and that was, you know, again just kind of realizing these things that I, I didn't really think about growing up as a kid. I didn't really, you know, I thought about it in, in college, but we were in that theater company, and it was an Asian-American theater company in college, and we were doing everything, playing everything, being everything, and then coming out and, you know, deciding to, to go for it and learning that, oh, you know, it's not as limitless mm. as it was in college. You know, on a human level, I'm wondering... What did that do to your spirit at that time? Going into it, I was aware of this stuff, obviously, sure. you know, like, and I and I knew, like, it would be a challenge. And literally, my mom would tell me that the types of roles are, are well, the roles are limited and the types of roles are not the most heroic things to, it's not like what you think going in. It's going to be hard for you. And you're going to be playing things that you probably don't want to do. And I knew that going in. But just to kind of hear it from your friends that you did, you just spent a weekend with, you know. And in this context where you're supposed to get encouragement. And, yeah, it, it, it was tough. But it was also a little bit of fuel for me because I had gone through this Asian American Studies program. And I had... and I thinking I was going to be like an academic uh, professor, uh, you know, something that could kind of help the situation. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe being a performer, an actor, a writer will help. And uh, kind of knowing where the industry stands is, is a good thing. Gives you something to kind of push against. Are you a competitive person? Not really. 
I don't think so. I, I asked because you so. mentioned the idea of this giving you some kind of fuel. Yeah, I think I am when it comes to things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I am in terms of uh, other people so much. But yeah, the idea of being a part of a positive change is like that's exciting right. to me. Yeah, the ongoing trajectory for anyone who decides to act seems horrific to me. Yeah, it seems so terrifying and sort of pinpoints everyone's insecurities and. Mm -hmm makes people feel bad about themselves and all, oh, all, all of these things. So uh, I'll tell you another story. A few years into my uh, pursuing acting, I got, um, I booked a, a recurring on a pilot. Mm -hmm. This was like a cop show. And I was like a recurring cop in the precinct. And um, I remember just being super excited because this was like one of the first kind of potentially semi-regular things that if the pilot were to get picked up, oh, I'll, I'll have a job. And also I get to play a cop, and that's cool, you know. And I remember I auditioned off of a tape. One of the producers was in the room, and uh, I never went back in. They hired me off of tape. Show up uh, the first day. And the first day, I didn't have hardly anything to do in the episode, but I did have one scene, like, where I actually had, like, lines. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the... I was in a bunch of other scenes, but I was pretty much in the background. And, and the first day, I was shooting that big scene. And that big scene was in a locker room. And I was uh, getting into an argument with the lead guy uh, who played the lead cop. And this tall, handsome guy. And we're in the precinct locker room. And he, like, we were screaming at each other. And he, like, grabs me and pushes me up against the locker. It was, a you know, a tough kind of cop, angry, you know. Yeah. These manly cops going at it. and uh, You're manly. I, I was supposed to be. I buy it. That's where... Uh, <laughs> Well, this is the thing. And uh, the director was uh, this horrible human being, just horrible. So, like, we get into this scene, and I remember preparing for it. I was so ready to do it, and we get into this, this argument scene. And then the director yells, cut, and he comes up to me, and he, like, pulls me aside. And I could tell, like, right off the bat, he does not like me. And he's like, hey, you're a cop. Just play up the copness, you know. And I was kind of like, okay, I'll do that not fully understanding what he meant, but I, my guess was just kind of be a little more... Macho. Macho. We do it again. He yells, cut again. And I could tell he's getting more and more frustrated. He comes up to me, he's like, look, you got to be more manly. And I'm like, okay, I'll try. I'll try. And I'm getting, like, nervous. I'm in my head at this point. And I, like, deepen my voice for the scene, you know. And he, he's like cut and he comes up and he's just like, look, you're not being manly enough. He's saying this out loud. And all the other cast members, I could tell they're getting like annoyed with me. And I'm thinking in my head, this is as manly as it gets with me. <laughs> it's not going to get any manlier than this, but I'll try. And I could tell, you know, we do it a bunch of takes. I could tell in my head, like, he just has something against me. And I, at this point, I'm wondering, like, is it a racial thing? Is it, why can't he see me as, like, a man? I'm trying to do this as, you know, I auditioned for it. You hired me. And it gets to the point where he's just so frustrated, and he's just like, moving on. Let's move on. And uh, I never really, like, got it. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, man. And the entire cat, you know, I remember going to lunch after that scene, just kind of sitting by myself. At this point, no one wanted anything to do with me. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is like... A nightmare, you know. Go. I remember being in my trailer crying. At the same time, wondering how much of it was, I think this guy's racist. 
but I don't know, you know, because I am not the manliest man. <laughs> but again, I auditioned and I got the part. And I had to come back every day for the next week. And the next day I come back, the guy like doesn't even look me in the eye. And I remember thinking, okay, this is, I think it's a racial thing, but I don't know, you know. What's funny is like the pilot, obviously, it never gets picked up. It was like a bad pilot. And my agent calls me and is like, hey, I got the, uh, we got the tape of the pilot. Do you want to see it? And I was like, really? Yeah, send it to me. And this was like on a DVD. And, they, and obviously my agent hadn't seen it. They just had a copy of it. And I remember, I remember watching it and like most of my scenes were like cut. And the ones, like I had a couple lines that were kind of essential to the storyline. And I remember watching it and my voice was, duh. It was like some, they had dubbed over my voice with this like super, you know, it was like so ridiculous. And in my head the whole time I'm thinking, okay, this guy just had it in his head. This guy was not like a real man, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think about that a lot and how like traumatizing that was early on. Mm. And you still thought... Yeah, I'll stay in this. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I probably tried to quit after that and then kind of got pulled back in somehow. Did you have a lot of experiences where you were being discarded or meant to feel not essential in those early days of acting on set? No, not a, not a ton, but definitely a few times. Mm. And, you know, you never know if it's like a racial thing, and I don't like always jump to that right away, but... For the most part, it's been pretty nice. Mm. But on occasion, those things have come up. And yeah, definitely, they get me in my head. And But, you know, just kind of fight through them and, and keep going. <laughs> you know, I feel like as a result of some of this, you ended up writing and directing your own things. And you, and you made a few short films, only a few of which are available online. But yeah. th there's one I, I want to watch with you for a second. If you're interested in that, you're probably not. But we're going to do it. <sighs> it made me laugh. Which one is this? This is called Siamese Dad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so dumb. share one beating heart so to perform a surgery one of you will be without a heart which so i guess that's just science that's <laughs> well, true you see Kodian? i'm an american dad if you don't remember i was born in america that's <laughs> uh, funny that you saw that what's it like to watch that now uh you know i i uh i look back fondly at at that period in my life when I was just making a bunch of stuff. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was just definitely a stage in my, like, career where I was working a little bit enough to pay the rent or mm -hmm. at least pay for some things while I lived at home. And I just started writing stuff and making stuff, and I made a bunch of shorts and web series and just, like, things with my friends. We found this community. I was involved in this community called Channel 101 here in LA and was making a bunch of web series 
out of that. And uh, yeah, those are fun, fun times. <laughs> I watched that short, and then I also watched uh, one called Fight. Oh, yeah, yeah. That made me laugh. <laughs> there is so much joy on screen. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those where you're like, I, I know this is not great, but it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. because you can tell the people making it are having so much fun doing it. Yeah, we were. Does that feel like a more innocent time? I think it was an offshoot of my time in that theater company after college and in college and just a bunch of us just writing and making stuff and just not really knowing what we were doing, but just having so much fun and uh, do whatever the hell we want. And we have no money to put into the budget of these projects, but that's okay. Yeah. Because uh, you're almost using that to your advantage and, and having fun with exposing the lack of a budget. Mm. That was kind of the spirit of those projects. You were living at home at this time? I was in and out of home. Right. What did that look like for you? Um, I was in another long-term relationship once I started pursuing acting. And <laughs> and when that one ended... I'm not really judging you. <laughs> it's, I, it's fake judgment. And I lived with my girlfriend at the time. And, and Was this an eight-year one? This is another six-year one, I think. Yeah, and after that ended, I moved back home and kind of in and out, Mm. just kind of booking a commercial or two and then, like, having enough to move out and then not booking again for a while and having to move back in, you know, type of thing. What is that ping pong like? Um, You know, at that point, I was older, you know. In your 30s. In my 30s, so I had a bit of perspective of it all, and I was actually very thankful that I had a home to move back into, mm-hmm. you know, and I was very aware of that. And also, like, looking back, and even though my parents never supported my career, in a way they did. Yeah. By, like... Housing. Housing me and feeding me sometimes, you know. And um, so, yeah, yeah, I was very aware at that point that how lucky I was to have that. Because if I came from another city, I would have moved back to that city and probably not mm-hmm. kept going. You weren't too prideful to go back? No. No, not at that point. Because you know a lot of people, um, especially, I'm sure, starting out in acting, many people have ambitions to act, to direct, to write, etc. They come here, they do it, they fail, they fail again, they fail another time, and then they go home, yeah. and they don't come back. Yeah. And many people don't come back because, or rather, some people stay here, but then abandon the art and, and just get a normal job. I think in large part because... Something about going back home hurts their ego sure, in a way that is too damning, too much. Right, having to face these people who saw them off with big dreams. And, and you didn't feel that? Not really. I mean, because I never left. I was born and raised here, and uh, it never... I find it admirable, honestly, about you. I find it very humbling. Yeah, but I also, again, I didn't really start pursuing this professionally until in my later 20s. So I, I had that perspective. I was an adult, like I had been an adult for a while, and I was making money doing other jobs. I was working in offices and doing things, you know, and I really knew what I wanted to do. And I didn't care at all about the idea of like being rich or successful. You know, I just wanted to like keep acting and writing and just doing whatever I can to kind of keep that going. Mm. When did you first feel like you had found your footing creatively? I think when I was making those shorts, actually, even though I was still, like, broke. But it was, uh, I felt like in such a kind of creative groove and just really alive because I was working with my friends. 
right and making stuff that was you know I, I felt like that was my voice and i was just having a lot of fun yeah you said uh in an interview that my thing has always been comedy yeah why do you think that is i don't know i think i just feel more comfortable doing that making people laugh yeah it's just more fun to me i don't know why <laughs> I don't know why. It was something that I just, kind you know, when we were in college doing this theater company, it wasn't all comedy. We were doing everything, but everything I wrote was comedy. I didn't know what I was doing. It just kind of felt more natural, I guess. I was a fan of comedy and kind of obsessed with it growing up, and it just felt like what I wanted to do. You know, around this time in the late 2000s and then early in the 2010s, things start to go particularly well for you. Mm-hmm. And the questions that I've noticed you keep getting about this time and, and, and even really where you're at now are almost always rooted in diversity. Diversity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know this better than I do. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it. Are you exhausted by that? Yeah, at this point. Um, I mean, I don't get upset about like having to answer those questions, but I do. a part of me does feel like I would love to hear that question being asked to a white guy actor mm-hmm. that has no connection to anything quote-unquote diverse. Right. That would be fascinating. It would be. Yeah. And um, you know what you're going to get with me when you ask that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great, you know. <laughs> There's no new avenues. Uh, no. But I feel like, you know, I get it. You know, it. You know, I've been a part of these projects that are... I wouldn't say groundbreaking, but in a way, you know. Yeah. I mean, many people found Fresh Off the Boat to be groundbreaking. Yeah. In a way, a big part of the sea change happening. Yeah. Did it feel groundbreaking to you? And I mean that to you, Randall, as a person, not looking at Hollywood with a bird's eye view. Um, Yeah, it did. But at the same time, it was kind of a, a that realization came slow. I mean, because I never... You know, when we did the pilot, it was super exciting in a lot of ways, like a dream come true and a full circle moment for me, like coming from Asian American studies and studying a lot of media representation stuff in college and then being a part of this pilot about an Asian American family on network TV. But I was like, this isn't going to get picked up the series. You know, this is great. It's not going to get picked up the series. And then we got picked up the series. And I was like, oh, this is crazy. But, you know, we'll go a season. Skeptical. Yeah, always skeptical. Not trusting the system, you know. And then we kind of just kept going. And then, at a, you know, and then, yeah, at points I look back and I'm like, wow, that's crazy. We're going into our sixth season. That's really crazy. But it's also like not, there's not a lot of write-ups about the fact that we're going in our sixth season. We're kind of quietly kind of just trudging along, you know. And I'm, But I'm kind of glad about that, too, you know. I'm glad that it's like we're just a part of the scene. This is the first time someone on a show has been like, thank God there's no one writing about it right now. <laughs> no, it's not that, but it's just like the, the fact that there's so much happening. Yeah. There were a bevy of articles about Constance Wu being upset about yeah. the show getting renewed. I don't really care, but to be honest. <laughs> but what I am interested in for you is that she was offering something very honest and sincere, mm-hmm. which uh, the media and the subsequent people online responding and commenting on social media have a hard time taking in and grappling with sincerity and nuance. Right. I think we're okay at it in our normal lives, but there's something online that happens 
And so she gets upset and expresses the thing of, this show does not always satisfy me, and, and I'd like to do other things. And people are irate. How dare she not be thankful for being able to do this thing? Can I ask you, just as I imagine her friend, but also someone in a very similar position in their career, Yeah. what did you make of that? I get where she's coming from, and I totally understand it, you know, and all of that is, yeah, she's a human being with a job. Right. And there are other opportunities. Which people forget. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, I also understand that people, they put actors and and entertainers on this kind of pedestal that, and I think for women in particular and for a person of color, there is kind of this, like, how can you not be appreciative? Has the show creatively satisfied you? Um, yeah, but I definitely want to do other things, too. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of things I want to do. The hope is to, yeah, that those things will come soon. There's an interesting correlation because uh, I think of someone like Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Yeah. Who did Seinfeld for nine years, I think. It's one of my favorite shows ever. But even at the end of it, there's some quote where she's like, and then what? I want to do something else. And she does something like Veep, which I think, for my money, is like my favorite thing that you've done. I loved you on Veep. I thought that was so great. Thank you. And she managed to reinvent herself again. The rest of the folks on Seinfeld have not done that. Some for different reasons than others. (laughs) Well, I mean... Kramer, uh, what's his name? Exactly. <laughs> but he did reinvent himself in a way. <laughs> <laughs> God, I thought I made the joke. <laughs> you did a great job. I, I like the rebranding he's done. <laughs> Michael Richards. <laughs> Michael Richards, that's yeah. right. The fact that you genuinely couldn't remember his name. I know, that's crazy. Horrifying. You are in comedy. Wow. And Kramer is one of the best, ca- I mean. Yeah, that's, sorry. No, don't apologize to him, not me. I don't know, what the hell do I care? It's just, it's telling. Yeah. And I guess my point is, it's really hard, even if you don't use a, a profanity, a, a racial slur, even if you are someone who's amicable, it's hard to reinvent yourself. Yeah. And Joey Leder Dreyfus is not a common story she's an outlier yeah are you thinking about what you want to do moving forward that can be not fresh off the boat yeah you you do want to separate even though you are thankful of course you're a thoughtful smart guy you do want to distance yourself and do something else for sure so a a couple of uh, friends from that college theater company one of them uh, two guys that uh, are dear friends of mine we were at UCLA together in that theater company at the same time one of them upon graduation became a writer wrote uh, award-winning playwright started uh, writing TV movies etc um, became a co-writer of always be my maybe with Ali Wong and I right and then another friend kind of went the other route and became an executive producer. Yeah, and there are a couple of working actors from there as well. Yeah, a bunch of working actors. But those two friends in particular and I just started a production company mm-hmm. and uh, got a deal with the studio and are gearing up right now. And I think that for me is like kind of the the beginning of those next steps. Right. How has, you know, you got married in 2008. Mm-hmm. How has being like a married stable person 
affected your progress in this industry? I think it like was key. Yeah. For me. Yeah. You're smiling at this. But that's who I am though. Stability. Yeah. I like that. That's why I was in all those long-term relationships, you know, because I like that. In college, you had a nickname as a counselor at uh, Unicamp Mm -hmm. as Care Moose. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When I read that, I was taken aback. (laughs) Really? Not because I didn't like the nickname. It is a weird nickname. No, it's a fine nickname. (laughs) Not downplaying the nickname. But because I've sensed it even in this talk is you do have this stability about you. Yeah. That I'm at once impressed by and envious of. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? Is that a silly question? I mean, it's no, it's not, but I don't know how to answer that. I don't know. I mean, I. it is definitely something that a lot of people have said about me, and I think there is truth to it to a degree, but I, I do think that inside there's a lot of, like, turmoil, and I think that that's everybody. Right. Also, I'm Korean, you know, and we all have, like, a little madness in us, I think. It's just, uh, like, a Korean thing, you know? What does that mean? I mean, Koreans are, you know, we... I don't know this. I've his, read. Historically, a lot, you know, I mean... I've heard. Watch the Anthony Bourdain. I think it's Parts Unknown, where he goes to Koreatown. That's a great episode to learn about, kind of, what it means to be Korean in America. Where have you seen the madness manifest itself in your life? At home, growing up, <laughs> laying in bed down the hall, listening to my, you know, parents go at it, and uh, just friends in the community. And, I mean, I don't think it's a, only a bad thing. It's a great thing, and I think it drives us. Hmm. I know it's in me, but I do, like, thrive on, like, having a pretty stable situation. Hmm. Can I ask you a couple broad things before we leave? Yeah. Do you think we'll get to a place in pop culture where films, television shows made by people of color are not predominantly focused on the fact that they are people of color. I hope this is not a diversity question. This is just a just on a pure yeah. taste and an art level. I think so. What has to happen? I think we got to get through that stuff first. You know, you need that to get there, I think. You need a show called Fresh Off the Boat and Blackish to get a show called Atlanta. It's just steps, and I think we're headed there, and I think people are mindful of that, of getting there now, I think. Even people in positions of power, they're realizing the good business sense in going that direction. And I don't think that was ever the case throughout like my earlier career, or definitely when I was growing up. Right. When you were growing up and starting out in your early career, your parents were, as you've mentioned, actively against you doing this. Now that you're on the other side of it and you have made something of yourself, are they more resolved about where you're at? Yeah, yeah, totally. They're super proud. And, you know, my dad, like, doesn't say it to me, but then people who work with him will tell me how obsessive he is about showing them my appearance on Ellen. (laughs) You know what I mean? And uh, I would never really know, would it not be for those people reaching out to me and telling me, but but I could also tell. Mm. And uh, yeah, my, my mom's super proud, and yeah, it's great. This may sound silly, but are you proud? 
I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I'm just kind of going through it, you know? <laughs> I'm just kind of going through it. And I think I had to kind of take on that kind of attitude early on, you know, when I first started and I would not tell my parents about anything, you know, I would not tell them when I booked a commercial because if I told them, then it would be like, how much did you make? Why aren't I seeing this on TV? Why? So it's like, okay, I can't tell them that. I wouldn't tell them anything. I just kind of put the blinders on and just, and, you know, other friends would like get a job and, it, you know, we'd have parties for them. And, but I would get a job and I would just not even say anything to anyone because I didn't want to make it a big deal. I just wanted to kind of keep at it and have fun while I'm doing it, but also like kind of just keep at it. Mm. Yeah, and I don't know if that's because of my parents and my upbringing or if it's just kind of who I am. I don't know, but I don't really like think about that too much, about how proud I am about this career, this work. Just kind of keep doing it. Do you want to change that value system? Not really. <laughs> not really, because it's not like, um, you know, it's just fun. I like it while we're doing it, and it's fun, and... uh other people are doing a lot more important things. <laughs> I asked a very earnest question, and you're like, no, no, not really. I mean, you know, I look back at some things, and I feel, yeah, actually, you know, I take that back. Some things I look back and feel proud. You know, I, I'm proud that that theater company we founded at UCLA is still going on. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's an Asian-American theater company. 25 years, still going. Yeah. It's crazy. Stuff like that, I think it's pretty cool. Well, I think you should be very proud. Oh, thank you. But that's just my feeling. And I say that now knowing that perhaps part of you that has a hard time admitting that you're proud about something or feeling those positive feelings is probably what drives you forward. Yeah, yeah. So I say that with some reservations. But it has been a joy having you. Oh, thank you. Good talking to you. Randall Park, thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. our show uh, special thanks this week to randall park for coming on if you'd like to learn more about him you can do so at our show notes at talkeasypod.com this show talk easy is available to stream on spotify itunes stitcher soundcloud wherever you get your podcasts if you want to help us out the best thing you can do for us is spread the word on social media with a friend with family whomever you think may be interested in this kind of show uh, we are an independently operated program, so we do rely on you, the listener, to help us out. And as always, this podcast would not be possible without our team. Design by Ian Chang, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Nikki Spina, our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang, our editor is Andre Lin. Our engineer is Tim Moore, and we tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. And finally, our producer is Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We will be back next Sunday. Until then, have a good week, everyone.
the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.